Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. There was a lot of excitement in New Haven when Vice President Kamala Harris visited the Elm City. How many local students know about another woman pioneer in their home state? Today, where we live, we talk about Ella Grasso, who was the nation's first female governor. Ideas may not be the best ideas. Sometimes they need to be refined. Many times they don't need to be discarded. That clip was from the CPTV series, The Connecticut Experience. Grasso was elected twice governor of Connecticut, but a cancer diagnosis led her to resign from office in December of 1980. She died shortly thereafter. Coming up, we hear from Lieutenant Governor Susan Beisowitz, who wrote a book about Grasso. Beisowitz's career in public service was inspired by the late governor. Now, what do you remember about Ella Grasso? Maybe the blizzard of 1978 stirs up some memories? You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest joining on Zoom is John Permont, history professor emeritus at Southern Connecticut State University. He once worked for Ella Grasso as an executive assistant, and he wrote the biography, Ella Grasso, Connecticut's pioneering governor. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Now, before you tell us about Ella's upbringing, I wanted to hear more about the time that you worked for her. I understand you started in her office in 1979, and you were there for almost two years. So what was it like to work for the late governor? Well, every day was a new adventure, as I've said before, and uh, you never knew what was coming. Although we had a schedule, I don't mean that we never knew, but she was a dynamic lady, both personally and as a boss. She was uh, close to people. She had a wonderful way of empathy to extend that uh, feeling toward people. And uh, it was exciting and a a great experience. You said she was a dynamic person. So tell me how the public responded to her. I understand you once attended a lunchtime concert with the governor. Yes. That was an interesting experience. Uh, I had brought my lunch that day. I attended the series of concerts that Trinity had, and she I never would eat at my desk, but I did that day. I, I closed the door to her office and mine, and she smelled the tuna fish sandwich I was having. So she said, Is someone eating? Come here. I want some of that. Can you share your sandwich with me? I said, sure. I said, would you like to go to the concert? And she said, I would like to go. I like, would you like some company? So we went to the concert and uh, it was a great concert at Trinity. The organ was dynamic and the surroundings are beautiful at the Trinity College Chapel. And uh, of course, heads turned when they saw the governor arrive for the concert. I must say, uh, they were looking at me, they were looking at her. <laughs> And what was her personality like? I've read uh, different accounts. Well, she was always fair. She 
never expected someone to do something that she wouldn't uh, do for herself. I mean, I, I was told before I went up to take the job that she was a tough, tough lady to work for. And uh, she was tough in the sense, but she was fair. No woman could succeed and no man could succeed in politics unless they have a tough skin. Uh, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, women must develop a skin like a rhinoceros in order to, in order to survive in politics. Mm. She never lost an election. And so how did she keep that popularity with voters? Well, there are lots of things. She uh, worked very hard on her job. When she uh, went out to campaign, you could see how people uh, really looked up to her and admired her. She kept that close association with women or with the public, with the voters, from the very first time she ran as a state rep for a state rep. She had a very successful four-year run as a state representative. And uh, I recall one thing that she got involved in that uh, says a lot about her popularity. There was a bill in the legislature, this is the 1950s, so you have to remember to put it in the time frame. Uh, the farmer, dairy farmers wanted the date of pasteurization, which occurred on the uh, top, the bottle cap, removed because they said it was costly to put that on there. I'm reminded of that every day I, when I go out and buy milk. I want to look at the date when it was last date of, of uh, they can sell it. So she latched onto that issue uh, that they wanted to remove that date. And she said that was unfair to people. And she, uh, before she knew it, she had the petitions from thousands of people around the state come into her into her office. And believe it or not, that issue became a key one in the 1954 Legislative Assembly. And uh, it was an example of the kind of thing that she tapped into that was very popular. And she was the beneficiary of that. They never removed that cap, that date on the cap. So she started as a, a state lawmaker. She then served 12 years as Secretary of the State then went on to two terms in Congress. Take us back to that time period uh, that she was building her career, John. Uh, and how did men respond to her and women at the time as, a, as a, a woman leader? Well, she often said that she never encountered any opposition because she was a woman. I don't doubt what she said is true, but there were probably pockets of opposition to her. But she became a very familiar figure in Connecticut politics. So men felt comfortable with her and she was competent and she took her job seriously and uh, <clears throat> she was admired for lots of things. But I, I think one of the things that people admired her for, she, she was bright lady, very bright. And uh, she had a um, a good relationship with John Bailey, who was a state party chairman. He never brought that issue up about a woman uh, that I can see anyway. He uh, used her uh, for a sounding board and also Governor Ribicoff, Governor Dempsey. She was a member of the kitchen cabinet, often did writing for them, wrote speeches. Ribicoff in his memoirs 
which are located in his papers at Columbia University, which I reviewed, said he owed a lot, practically everything, to Ella Grasso and what she did for him to see him be a successful governor. So I don't see that as a major issue. And you mentioned uh, Abraham Ribicoff, also John Dempsey, um, and then there's also John Bailey. So these are all prominent uh, leaders in the Democratic Party. But she didn't start off as a Democrat, John. Tell us about when she made the switch. Well, initially, when she uh, enrolled as a voter, she enrolled as a Democrat or as a Republican. And... uh, then when she ran for state representative in 1952 in Windsor Locks, that issue was held against her. But she transferred her uh, voter enrollment to a Democrat from a Republican. And it was used against her by her opponent uh, and, and several Democrats. But uh, she poo-pooed it. And she, I think part of it was that she had run into Chester Bowles, believe it or not, uh, in the uh, World War II, she was uh, working as the assistant director of, uh, of the Office of Manpower Research, and she came across Chester Bowles, and who, of course, later ran for governor as a Democrat in 1948. And uh, I think maybe his his earnestness and his desire for uh, uh, the governorship of Connecticut in 1948 may have influenced her a bit to change her affiliation. Her parents were Republicans, and uh, maybe that caused a little uh, discussion over the dinner table. I don't know, but uh, it was uh, not a major issue later on. She was fascinated by politics, and she was a Democrat true and true. You're hearing John Permont here on Where We Live. He's, he's history professor emeritus at Southern Connecticut State University. He once worked for the late Governor Ella Grasso as an executive assistant. He wrote a biography, Ella Grasso, Connecticut's pioneering governor. So, John, let's talk more about her upbringing. She was the daughter of Italian immigrants. She grew up in, in Windsor Locks? She grew up in Windsor Locks, a small industrial town. She was a uh, uh, daughter of immigrants. And Windsor Locks is a good microcosm of what Connecticut was was like at the turn of the century. She was born in 1919. It was a town made up of immigrants, largely, who worked in factories, uh, manufacturing businesses. Her father, she was an only child. Her father and mother were uh, limited in their education and schooling in Italy. Uh, they spoke Italian and broken English at the home. So right from the beginning, Ellen had uh, this ability to speak Italian as well as English. Uh, It's a a very nice community. I think it was made up of largely immigrant families. They were Italians and Poles and Irish and Lithuanians, all living on the street or nearby streets. So she I think developed a good sense of community from that early uh, early education in in Windsor Locks. She went to St. Mary's parochial school. She ran into a teacher in the eighth grade by the name of Sister DeChantel, who became her counselor and friend for 
years up until she her third term as Secretary of State, she was alive. That is, the nun was. And uh, Sister DeShanto used to tell children, you have a special gift and you, use, you should use that gift to improve life and for others. And I think that set, set well with Ella. It stayed with her for years. She didn't have a lot of friends, playmates. She speaks of one uh, particular who became a priest, who later became her confessor. Uh, and uh, she uh, had also a, a admirer in, she had a great admiration for Dr. Carnelia, Ettore Carnelia, who was a local doctor in Winslow Arts. She admired him for lots of reasons, but one, he was a scholar who went to Loomis, to Harvard as an undergraduate, and Harvard Medical School, all on scholarship. What was interesting is that he had similar uh, background as Ella did. He was a child of immigrants. And she says many, many times, he broke barriers. One of them was the racial barrier. That is, he was Italian. And that must have been a quite, a, quite an achievement for an Italian boy of immigrants to have gone through Harvard and Harvard Medical School to great, great admiration in town by a lot of citizens and by Ella till his death. She would go on to study at Mount Holyoke uh, College. Is that where her public service really started, was ignited, John? I think so. She had a very special relationship with the chairman of the Economics and Sociology Department. Amy Hughes was her name. Professor Hughes gets great credit from Ella for not only her uh, activism as a labor activists and she taught economics and sociology to Ella, but she used her classes as, as laboratories, you might say. She engaged her students in classwork, but took them out to factories locally and showed what labor was really like in those hot, uh, factories that they worked in, Hadley and South Hadley and Holyoke and Springfield, they were manufacturing towns too. And uh, it was Professor Hughes who wanted the students to see what life was really like outside of the classroom. And Ella never forgot those years with Amy Hughes. She also had an experience as a graduate student. She stayed on there for a master's degree she was a graduate assistant in the department. She went to the Hudson Shores Labor School as a, an assistant to Amy Hughes. She would choose few students every year to go with her down to the Hudson Shores Labor School. And that was another eye opener too for Ella. It opened her world to a different milieu and she never forgot that experience. You're hearing John Permont here on Where We Live. He's history professor emeritus at Southern Connecticut State University. He once worked for Ella Grasso. We'll continue talking after the break. And we want to hear from you, too. What do you remember about Governor Grasso? What is her legacy today? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The late Governor Ella Grassa grew up in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, the child of Italian immigrants. Before she led the state from 1975 until 1980, she was a congresswoman, and she also served many years as Connecticut's Secretary of the State, and she was a state legislator, too. Her calling to serve the public started after she attended Mount Holyoke College. Now, what do you remember about Ella Grasso? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. John, uh, before the, the break, I asked, what is Ella Grasso's legacy to Today. So let's talk through some of the big moments uh, when she was governor. I guess we should, should we mention the blizzard of 78 first? The what in 78? The blizzard of 78. Was that well, uh, um, an interesting moment in her time as governor? Well, yes. Storm Larry was the issue then. Uh, as you remember, it was a blizzard. It, it came February 5th, it lasted for several days. And uh, she closed the state highways down, which was unheard of in those days, uh, saving uh, many, many lives, enabling the state and the army. She called on President Carmer, uh, Carter to uh, dispatch uh, what he could of federal uh, heavy equipment, army equipment. And they came and uh, opened the highways. But she closed the state down for three, three days. Uh, and uh, that was a, a major, major development for Connecticut. Now, we, when we have huge storms, it's a routine. You expect the governor to close the highways down. But in those days, uh, it was the first for Connecticut, and uh, it was the best thing that happened. It saved enormous numbers of lives uh, on the highways, and uh, she got great, great credit for that. It's some people said when I wrote the book, I was around and interviewing people and somebody told me that that saved Ella's reelection. That helped her. She showed leadership beyond expectations. And uh, I can't say that Larry Storm Larry saved her in terms of her reelection. I think she would have won despite it, but it certainly helped her uh, gain uh admiration and respect and help to re-election in 78. There's no question. 
Would you describe her as a centrist back in her day? Again, she was a Democrat, but I understand she was also against abortion. She fought with state employee unions to balance the budget. Describe uh, how she leaned and how uh, these different parties viewed her at the time. Well, I think she was a moderate. She was a fiscal moderate, socially liberal. And her anti-abortion stand was deeply rooted in her religious faith. She said, I have great respect for human life, and it came from her religious faith. But the money was still there for rape and for people to get abortions who were victims of rape and incest. So I, I can't defend it any other way except that way. You can join our conversation again as we talk about Ella Grosso. Marilyn's calling in from Canton. Hi, Marilyn. What's your memory of the late governor? Hi. So I used to live in the, in the South End, and I, my daughter was a toddler. I was a single parent, and we were in one of those Italian restaurants, and we went in, and my daughter ran up to um, who I later found out was the governor. She ran up to her and climbed up on the seat of the booth and gave her a big hug in a spontaneous way that children do. And the governor looked down at her and gave her a hug back, just like she was her grandmother and they'd known each other forever. And um, and then uh, they had a short conversation, and as my daughter stepped back down from the booth, I realized that that was the governor, and I just was so thrilled to think that this was such a user-friendly woman that was my representative, and I just remember thinking, like, that's because she's a woman, and she's a kind, good-hearted person, and I'm glad she represents me. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that, Marilyn. John, how do you respond uh, to Marilyn's uh, memory of of uh, Ella Grasso? Uh, she seemed so relatable to just regular people. Yes, that's right. Uh, I'm glad to hear Marilyn's uh, account of that in day in an Italian restaurant. You know, for years I was a teacher and I taught Connecticut history and I came to that part of the semester when I talked about Ella. And uh, I had a number of students over the years tell me that when they were young and she was appearing at a parade or some event in town, they went up to her and shook her hand and she, they said to me, you know, we didn't want to wash our hands <laughs> for days afterwards. We were so impressed. So I think that's uh, the way people felt about her. You know, we named her Ella. We, uh, it was a very familiar person to us growing up. And uh, she was known as simply as Ella. And that conveys a closeness a personal feeling that people had for her at, at, at any age. Uh, it's true. Earlier you talked about uh, her mentors and uh, how she was a mentor and a role model for many uh, Italians uh, and what it meant to see her in this role. But I'm wondering, you know, when you look back at her, again, uh, terms as governor, you know, how did she handle racial justice issues back in her day? 
Well, I can cite one thing particular that stands out in my mind. She backed the idea of a holiday for Martin Luther King. She was, I, I don't think she was the first governor, but she may have been one of the early donors to designate a day in January the 15th, which became a national holiday uh, for Martin Luther King. She also spoke many, many times uh, about the need for housing. That goes back, I think, perhaps I'm reaching this idea over the, over the decades. But, you know, one of the key proposals that Chester Bowles proposed back in 1948-49 when he was governor, 49-50, was the creation of the State Department of Housing, which would fund in communities uh, public housing, particularly aimed for veterans at, at that point, uh, veterans of World War II, but it, it's expanded to other groups of people throughout the state. And that may have been something that triggered her in her mind. She was always for expanding that program, Department of Housing, State Department of Housing. But she learned that from uh, Chester Bowles back in the 40s, late 40s. And how did she feel about local control? I mean, we think about uh, all of the uh, fiscal issues and problems that remain in our state today, uh, going back to this longstanding achievement ga gap or the idea that so much of uh, Connecticut ha is segregated. And I'm just wondering um, how she viewed local control and how some of those views and policies back then are, you know, have led us to where we are today, John. Well, I think she was one who believed in a careful balance between local control and state control. I don't think she would ever be a, a person who strongly insisted that the state had control over particular items that were locally uh, important. For instance, education, that is still a locally controlled uh, part of the structure of Connecticut government. Now, if you're talking about housing, I don't think she was involved in creating a program that would knock down barriers of zoning, but she, she would, I think, balance it out by proposing and continue to do this, uh, State Department of Housing and creating that for seniors, for senior citizens, as well as for low income and middle income people. I don't know if that answers your question so much, but in her day, it was not so much an issue of local control versus the state control. You know, often we are reminded with these looming uh, budget deficits in Connecticut for several years now, and it's nowhere, uh, the end is nowhere in sight, John, but we hear often how uh, the state pension fund was not adequately funded. And I'm just wondering during um, her time in office how uh, that was handled. I know that when she became governor, there was um, some massive deficits that she also had to deal with. She did have massive deficits to deal with. And her position was that she had to raise taxes, sales tax particularly. Uh, it went up one one year or two years in a row to seven percent. 
very high and, and never again to see the light of day, we hope. But she definitely opposed the income tax. She, she gave a, a, there's a situation in the first campaign of 74 where she had all the people on her under ticket appear at a press conference and they all pledged there would be no state income tax because that was an issue that uh, was used against her in that campaign saying, well, you favor all these programs. How is going to who's going to pay for them? And they took the strong stand at her insistence that there would not be an income tax imposed on Connecticut. That may in the, in the long run uh, have been uh, a short a judgment that was short uh, in its vision, but it was not politically possible for her to support an income tax, though people felt that it was that it was a fairer way to go about taxation. Hmm. Leslie's calling in from stores. Hi, Leslie, you're on the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I grew up in Windsor Locks and I um, greatly admired and was very influenced by the legacy of Ella Grasso. I happened to be in high school during that big snowstorm when the state was closed. Um, and one thing I want to relate is how um, Ella got along with all the classes of people. There was a paper company in um, Windsor Locks near the canal, and she would meet the workers when they came across the street for their 3 a.m. Um, break from work. And she could meet freely with them, and she spoke with them, got along with them. And then the next day, she could go and meet President Kennedy. And I just really admire somebody who can mix with different classes of people. And Ella was one of those. The only mm-hmm. thing that ever stopped her from achieving anything was her cancer, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So thanks well, for taking my call. Well, thank you, Leslie, for calling in. And that's a great transition to where I was headed next. And that, of course, uh, John, is after she was reelected, I believe uh, she beat her opponent by more than 200,000 votes. Is that right? And uh, unfortunately, she wasn't able to complete her term. Well, she won that first election by over 200,000 votes. The second election in 1978 was by 190,000-some-odd votes. So that was a little different. Uh, when she took office that second time, things were beginning to turn around uh, for the state. Uh, she didn't yet have a budget surplus, but it, she had to raise taxes. And uh, as you remember, she laid off 500 employees, uh, state employees at the holiday time that created a riff with unions of which she was a longtime supporter of labor. And uh, gradually they were uh, summoned back, not all of them. Others had taken other positions in other, other places, but uh, that was a hard thing for her to do. I think it was the hardest thing for her to do. But in relation to the call that you, that you just had, her ability to work and you know be with people of all kinds of social backgrounds i'm reminded of uh, the day that the queen arrived in 1976 queen of england came over with her husband prince philip to partake partake in the bicentennial celebration uh, 
and she visited all the 13 original colonies. So she, Connecticut was on her list and she came into the harbor on her yacht, Britannia. She came, the queen arrived from there to the dock by a launch. There were lots of people gathered to see this and there to greet her, greet the queen and the Duke was the governor, Governor Grasso, Ella Grasso, with her husband, Tom Grasso. And they did a walk around, you know, walk about or whatever they call that. <laughs> they, they met all the people who were gathered there or tried to meet a lot of them. And then they left by car and went to Tweed New Haven Airport where the Queen was then going to fly to Massachusetts, to Boston, to visit Massachusetts. So her visit in Connecticut was quite limited in terms of time. So uh, I'm telling the story because I think it relates to what the young lady said about uh, being able to relate to all kinds of people. I said to Dr. Grasso when I was uh, interviewing him for the book, what can you tell me about of the queen when she came? Did, is there anything that you can talk about? He said, John, Conversations with the Queen are never discussed publicly, so I can't tell you anything about that. But I will tell you one little story, he said. The Duke, Prince Philip, leaned forward from his chair, from his seat in the car and limo, and he said, Dr. Grasso, what do you do for a living? And Dr. Grasso said, I walk three paces behind her like you do. Which <laughs> evinced a hilarious laugh out of Prince Philip and I thought it was a good little story to, mm -hmm. to tell people when they say she could meet all kinds of people. It doesn't reflect what she said, the, the governor said, but it tells you what mm -hmm. the first gentleman said. Uh, John, we're, we're almost out of time. Uh, again, Ella Grasso passed away from cancer February 5th, 1981. She was unable, of course, to complete her second term uh, as governor. Uh, if she had lived longer, where do you think her career would have taken her? Well, I once asked her that question. What will you do when all of this ends? And she said to me, she thought for a minute about it, and she said, you know what I think I'd like to do is I'd like to do, teach a course or two, a seminar, perhaps at Mount Holyoke, and on politics and government and so forth. And also, I would like to write. And I would like to write about Connecticut women that I've encountered throughout my career. Women who wouldn't be on the, the, the list of people that many people remember. People who were helpful to her in her career. So that's the best thing I can think of. She was a wonderful writer. Uh, and I have several examples uh, of one that, uh, of speeches that she gave that were really terrific and letters that she wrote. Uh, we don't have time for that, I understand, but that's what I think she would have done. John Permont, again, is history professor emeritus at Southern Connecticut State University, and he wrote Ella Grasso, Connecticut's pioneering governor. John, thank you for your time today. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, we talk with Connecticut's Lieutenant Governor, Susan Bysowitz. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Joining us now on Zoom is Susan Bicewitz, Connecticut's Lieutenant Governor. She also wrote a book about the former uh, Governor Ella Grasso. Lieutenant Governor Bicewitz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was really interested to speak with you because I understand that Ella was someone that you uh, really wanted to be and it's inspired you in your political career. When was the first time you saw the late governor? Well, I was in high school when that snowstorm that you were just talking about happened. Um, I was a junior in, in high school, so uh, my siblings and I were thrilled that we got a week off from school. You know, normally you'd get a day or two off for a snowstorm, but that was that was quite a big one. Um, and then that summer, I was part of uh, the American Legion Girl State program. This is a program that uh, the American Legion puts on to teach high school girls and boys all over the state about civics and um I went to that program the summer between my junior and senior year in high school, and I was with a group of very noisy high school girls um, in Jorgensen Auditorium at UConn, and there was this hush that suddenly fell, and I looked around to see why everyone was quiet, and it was because Governor Grasso was in this very dignified, purposeful way she had striding down the center aisle of Jorgensen Auditorium to come speak to us. And uh, she talked to us for about an hour about uh, what she did as governor. Um, And I remember being struck by how she wanted to help people and she talked about how she helped individual constituents she talked about how she worked with the legislature to pass laws that she thought would help the state and i remember thinking at that time you know maybe someday i would like to be in government and i never imagined that uh, i would actually sit at the desk that she sat in when she was secretary of the state Mm-hmm. You know, I asked uh, John Permon about how men viewed Ella Grasso uh, during her time as governor. Um, and I thought it was telling, uh, reading uh, some old uh, newspaper accounts, uh, Irene Driscoll of the Hartford Current uh, being critical of how uh, the media uh, would poke fun at what uh, Ella wore uh, and um, depicted her as screaming uh, when she battled against the Public Utilities Commission. And, uh, you know, those are all those are things that often um, people pick women of pick on with women, whether how they look or how they sound. And I'm wondering what your take is on that, how she was viewed as a woman leader. Well, it's interesting because I I remember when um, Hillary Clinton was uh, running for president, there would be all kinds of media accounts and references to you know the pantsuit the pantsuit she was wearing her clothing her appearance and you would never hear anything about her male opponents so this was nothing new um ella grasso uh was uh someone who really didn't care about what she wore she wanted to wear comfortable shoes 
Um, she wasn't that concerned about uh, her appearance and uh, she wanted to wear comfortable shoes because she was always on her feet uh, giving speeches and she even kept a pair of uh, low-heeled shoes in the back of her car so that when she gave a speech and she had to be on her feet for an hour that she would be comfortable and, and comfort was uh, her guiding principle. And I remember that she even said, um, "I promise I'll keep my, I'll, I promise I'll keep uh, my campaign uh, promises, but I never promised to wear stockings." So, you know, <laughs> she would even poke fun uh, at herself, and she would also say, "You know, in Connecticut, I'm like an old shoe," and what she meant by that was. She had a long career in public service, but as we've heard from John Permount and, and some of the people who've called in, so many people felt like they knew her. Um, and uh, she was so approachable. Uh, she was someone who, uh, with her Mount Holyoke education, could speak with League of Women voters in Greenwich or Litchfield or she could go to the Carmela Coat Factory in Middletown and speak Italian with the women that were sewing coats. She had a remarkable ability to relate to all kinds of people. She inspired you. What do you think her legacy is today, Lieutenant Governor? You know, uh, she, she inspired me. But she also, I've talked to uh, men in politics who were Italian-American who told me that uh, when she was elected governor, they realized it was possible as an Italian-American and the child of immigrants to run for public office and be successful. Um, I think part of her legacy is the greater number of women that we have serving in office uh, when she was state representative in the early 1950s, she was one of only a handful of women. And it was very unusual when she ran for secretary of the state to have a woman serving in statewide constitutional office. Uh, so I think she would have been pleased to see, you know, that we have had at one moment four or six of our constitutional officers who are women. Uh, we don't have that uh, right now. And I think she probably would be a little bit disappointed that here we are a hundred years after women's suffrage uh, was passed and we do not have 50% women serving in our legislature. We have 34%. Uh, Mm. I had asked John Permon about um, some of uh, her time in office uh, as governor, um, some of the ways that she handled some thorny issues uh, like uh, the state income tax. And I'm wondering when you look back at her time as governor and how she approached some of those issues. She was very frugal personally, and she wanted to show people that she wasn't going to waste their money. So when she took office, she actually used Governor Meskel's stationery and had her assistant X out on the typewriter, Governor Meskel, and type in Governor Grasso. And when she moved into the governor's residence, she said 
she ordered the the house staff not to use the dryer to hang the the clothes out outside and she also insisted on driving a compact car not a bigger sedan that the state troopers usually would drive the governor in so um, she wanted to show people that she was living very frugally as their governor and she was going to do her best to do the same uh, with state resources and i think of her often in uh, situations where our state or our country is in crisis and she was the kind of leader who when a crisis occurred she would go to where people were suffering and talk to them so during the storm uh, the the big snowstorm she would uh, take a helicopter and go visit different places in the state that were still digging out and, and talk to people. And I think people remember and appreciate that kind of compassion that she had for people mm-hmm. and that kind of very hands-on and competent leadership. We like to think that Connecticut was ahead of the pack in the fact that this state elected a woman to be governor in her own right. But I'm wondering, uh, during her time in office, Lieutenant Governor Bysowitz, this was around the time, second wave of feminism. How did she view that movement? You know, she was a very, very a smart, competent woman, and, and she looked for well-educated women to... Uh, take important roles. And so uh, my mom was a professor at the University of Connecticut Law School, and she recruited my mother to serve on the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women and also on the Judicial Selection Commission. Uh, She was also someone who recruited Ellen Ash Peters to serve um, on our Supreme Court. So she really did appreciate um, the the power of, of smart, competent women and looked for people like Sandra Bailoon to serve as labor commissioner. Uh, so she wanted as many smart, competent women as she could to be part of her administration and to be on her boards and commissions in, in our state. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you've talked about uh, how uh, she really uh, impressed you and inspired you in your uh, career, Lieutenant Governor Bysowitz. Uh, do you hope to one day run for governor again? You know, uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. We have a lot on our plate right now, just recovering from uh, the pandemic, making sure everyone gets vaccinated, that our small businesses are back on their feet, that our kids are back in school full time. Uh, so there's there's a lot to do before uh, I think about what I'm running for next. And I would say I think our, our governor, Ned Lamond, is doing a fantastic job uh, leading us through this terrible pandemic. We just have under a minute. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that uh, women rep- representation in all levels of government still lacking when we think about how we make up half of the population. So what more needs to be done to encourage more women in office, especially women of color? We need more women from diverse backgrounds to run for office at all levels 
uh, local, state legislature, federal level, in Congress, we're still stuck at 25% in, in the U.S. House and 24% in the U.S. Senate. So there is still a lot to do. We need to encourage women of all backgrounds, particularly women of color, uh, to run for office. We would all be better off to have more diverse voices at the table and, and leading our towns, our uh, state in our country. That's Lieutenant Governor Susan Bicewitz. Again, she also wrote a book about the late Governor Ella Grasso called Ella. Lieutenant Governor Bicewitz, we appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Today's show is produced by Matt Dwyer. Special thanks to Robin Doyen Aiken on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>